Hello, and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you're listening to Novel Conversations, a program about the world's greatest stories. In Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one novel, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we'll read from the book along the way. And at the end, I talk to our researcher, Ted Schwartz, for endnotes. Ted always has something interesting to tell us about the author and the book. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Today, I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. Jennifer, Pat, hello. Hello, Frank. Hi, Frank. Before we get started, let me read a brief introduction to our novel, Little Women. Written by Louisa May Alcott and published in 1868 and set in Massachusetts, Little Women is the story of the four March sisters, Meg, Joe, Amy, and Beth. But it is Joe March who is the central little woman of our novel. Joe is an outspoken tomboy with a passion for writing. No little lady... Joe displays good and bad traits in almost equal measure. A lovely, flawed hero, we follow Joe and her sisters through adventures big and small, fun and dangerous, all while recognizing ourselves in their successes and failures. How Joe learns to behave and become a lady, or at least a woman, with the help of her friends and family, make up the story of today's novel, Little Women. Jennifer, with that brief introduction, let me ask you, is this the first time you read Little Women? Oh, no. I read Little Women many times when I was a little girl. Well, is this the first time reading it as an adult? I read it to my daughters when they were little, so it's been maybe 20 years since I read it. Pat, let me ask you, is this the first time you've read Little Women? No. Like Jennifer, I read it when I was a very small child and read it again and again and again, and then this was the first time I'd read it in, oh, decades. And even though I hadn't forgotten a lot of the plot, I'd forgotten a lot about the relationships, and looking at it from an adult perspective, it really takes on a new patina. Can you give me an example? Well, I had forgotten about the relationship between Joe March and their next door neighbor, Theodore Lawrence. It's surprisingly modern. You're right. They did have a pretty modern relationship between the two of them. Jennifer, let me come back to you and ask you, now that you've read it as an adult, was it different to you? Actually, the same thing that bothered me about this story as an adult bothered me as a child, and that's why I read the story over and over again. I was always trying to figure out why I'm not as good as these girls and why my mom isn't perfect like their mom. Do your daughters hold you up to the high standard of Mrs. March? <laughs> to Marmy. <laughs> to Marmy March? Yes, I think so. All right, Pat, our novel begins at Christmas time, but it doesn't appear it's going to be a very happy Christmas for the March girls. No, it's not. It's the height of the Civil War. The family at one time was wealthy. They have lost their money on some bad business investments. Mr. March was attempting to help a friend and lost all of his fortune. In addition, their father has gone off to war as a minister, and it's cold, it's dark, and they're frightened. Well, Jennifer, we said there were four March girls. Who are the two oldest girls? Well, Margaret, known as Meg, and Josephine, known as Joe, are the two oldest girls. They're teenagers. I think Meg's probably 16, and Joe's probably about 15 at the beginning of the story. Meg, though, is very much into pretty dresses and pretty things and the fashionable life. And to the contrary, we learn right away that Joe doesn't care a lick about pretty dresses or pretty hair or having a good time with the other girls. Yeah, Josephine seems like quite a tomboy. Joe, she's messing with her boots and talking about being the man of the family now that dad's away and things like that. Without a doubt. Pat, let me ask you about the two youngest girls. Tell me a little bit about Beth and Amy. Beth is about 12 years old. Beth is a very quiet child. She's a very shy child, and she's content wherever she is. She's not a very healthy child either. 
the youngest one is Amy, and Amy is a fuss button. <laughs> Amy is about eight or nine. And she already knows where every mirror in the house is hung. She's tremendously vain, and she, like Meg, wants pretty dresses and parties, and she's fretful because her older sisters get to do exciting things that she doesn't. She does have an other interest. Her other interest is drawing. She's fascinated by it. And Amy goes to school, and the other girls aren't going to school, so she's trying to compete in that outside world with all her school friends. Well, Jennifer, if Amy's at school and Beth is at home, what do Joe and Meg do? Well, they have jobs. Meg is a governess, and Josephine is a companion to their older aunt, who's a widow. And she goes there and reads to her and fusses about her and takes care of her throughout the day. And she's a crabby old woman. So This is actually her father. Aunt, basically known to us as Aunt March. Yes, the wealthy Aunt March. That's right. <laughs> well, now we said this was Christmas time and they were a little unhappy because they didn't feel they had enough money for presents or that they weren't going to get any nice presents. But this despondency doesn't really last long. They snap out of it and get back into the spirit of the holiday, don't they? They do. The girls decide that they're going to take what little money they've saved up on their own and buy presents for their mom. But Pat, they're not just planning on buying their mother little gifts. They've actually got a more elaborate plan in mind. Yes, Joe has written a play and they've been rehearsing for some time. Practicing with the swords. And they even have costumes to wear and everything. We should say that Joe's the family reader and she also is the family writer. She's read a lot of great stories and from those stories seems to have cobbled together a five-act play to put on for the Christmas holiday. Yes, and you can tell by the way her sisters interact with her that they think highly of her writing and they love her play. But she doesn't think so highly of their acting, does she? <laughs> no, she's rather critical, especially poor little Amy who can't faint. She's just like a board. <laughs> and Joe is always sure to take all the best male parts for herself. That's yes. right. She gets to swagger around and make declarations, dress up in man's clothes and carry on. Well, I can't wait to hear how this play goes. Let's get to Christmas morning. How does Christmas morning open? Well, the girls wake up and find that their mother has given them little books, Pilgrim's Progress. They each get an identical copy of their own. And their mother wants them to read a chapter daily and work toward the moral betterment that is in Pilgrim's Progress. They love this present. They're thrilled. Because they're going through rough times themselves, and their mother has given them sort of a guidebook to get through the rough times. But Pat, even though their mother wants them to learn lessons from this book, Pilgrim's Progress, she's about to provide them with a very concrete example of how they can care for other people. That's true. The girls see that they have a splendid breakfast set out. Apparently, their cook, Hannah, has gone all out with whatever they could afford for Christmas Day. And before the girls can touch any of it, their mother comes in and tells them about a poor family that she has heard about. They have no food, they have a new baby, and things are not going well for the family. Jennifer, this is the German family, the Hummels? Yes, it's an immigrant family, so when the girls take their food and put it in baskets and take it down the street, the little children are speaking German to them, and they can understand enough of the words to realize the children are calling them angels. And even though they missed a Christmas breakfast, they certainly learned a Christmas lesson. They certainly do. But then they go home and have their play. How does that play work out? Well, I think it's going really well until the bed collapses that the audience is sitting on. <laughs> the dress circle, I think <laughs> the they call it, right? <laughs> But then there is actually a happy ending, isn't there? Well, yes. They all come downstairs, and there are flowers on the table. There's a feast set up for them, and there's even ice cream. Now, who did that? It was sent by their neighbor, Mr. Lawrence, who has heard about what they did for the Hummels and wants to reward them. Mr. Lawrence, you said? Mr. Lawrence is an old friend of the family, 
he has a lot of respect for the Marches because they once moved in the same social circles, and he knows how good they are. I got the feeling from the story, though, that the Lawrences and the Marches didn't really interact every day. No. Mr. Lawrence seems to have been secluding himself in his big house, and recently his grandson has come to live with him. And in raising him, I think this is maybe bringing him outside of himself a little bit. A grandson, huh? I bet the March girls are pretty interested in Mr. Lawrence's grandson. Well, they're intrigued. They see him looking out the window. Right. He spends all day inside with his tutor, and he goes out sometimes with his grandfather. But an opportunity for him to meet the girls soon arises. Yes, Meg is invited to a dress ball. So is Joe. And the girls are a little upset because Joe has managed to scorch her gown in the back by standing too close to the fire, so she can't dance. That seems to be a recurring story with Joe. Always her clothes are a mess. Yeah, and she's also managed to ruin her only pair of good gloves. Of course. So the girls agree that each girl will wear one of Meg's clean gloves and will carry a dirty one. Yeah, I think this event is more exciting for Meg than it is for Joe anyway. Joe's kind of seeing it as a bit of a stuffy affair, but Meg really wants her to come along. But she tells Joe, you can just stand in a corner with your back to the wall, and no one will see the burnt spot on your dress. But then they talk about dancing as if they expect that Joe will still manage to dance somehow. <laughs> with no one seeing her with back. With no one seeing her back. <laughs> well, does Joe ever get to dance? Yes, she does. And she dances with Teddy Lawrence. Oh, so they do meet. They do. She's standing against the wall hiding, and he's hiding too. Well, why? Is he afraid of being asked to dance? <laughs> he's just shy. He doesn't know anyone. It turns out that he's been eager to meet them as much as they've been eager to meet him. And he does ask her to dance. But then she tells him she can't because she has this burn spot. <laughs> but he's all right with that. He finds a hallway, and they do the polka. <laughs> and it's during this time that we learn a little bit about Theodore Lawrence. We learn that he's bored with his studies, and he'd rather be living in Italy and playing the piano because he wants to be a musician. He loves to read. He's restless, and he's chafing under his grandfather's supervision. And we also learn he has a tutor, a Mr. Brook. And Mr. Brook doesn't understand why Theodore cannot apply himself. And Jennifer, Pat, it's with Joe meeting Theodore Lawrence, who they all call Laurie, that really starts a lot more interaction between the Lawrence family and the March family. And Mr. Lawrence says there isn't any harm in him going over to that little nunnery over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Jennifer, Pat, I've got to say, we've painted quite a picture of these four girls. For the most part, it is a happy home. But we do know that dark days are coming. Yes. yes. But before the clouds completely cover the March family, there's still one bright ray of sunshine for Joe. Right. Joe's been very busy writing in the garret. And one of her stories has been published. In a weekly newspaper. And she's keeping it a secret from everyone except Lori, who caught her coming out of the publisher's office. So she had to tell him. And then she finds the story in the paper and reads it aloud to her sisters. And only after they tell her it's a good story does she admit that it's hers. Well, did she get any money for this story? No, but it did earn her another little secret, one that Lori has told her. And what is Lori's secret? That Mr. Brooke, his tutor, has been carrying around one of Meg's gloves. <laughs> I guess our little women are growing up. Yes, much to Joe's displeasure. She doesn't want to see any boys interfering in their lives and taking away any of her sisters. But Pat, whether Joe wants her sisters to grow up or not, they're about to get a telegram that forces them all to grow up a little quicker. Yes. The telegram reads, Mrs. March, your husband is very ill. Come at once. They really expected the family member to come and nurse in those days. So Mrs. March pleads with Aunt March for money, even though it's humiliating for her. And in the middle of all this hubbub, Joe disappears for a while. 
and comes back with a surprise. This is quite a surprise. She has sold her hair to get money together to help her mother with this trip. And even the Lawrences get involved. Mr. Lawrence offers to send Mr. Brooke as a companion for Mrs. March so that she's not alone on the train. And what happens with the girls at home during this time? They all know that they have responsibilities and they all have to step up to the plate on this one. But after a little while, they start slacking off. Jennifer, one of the things their mother was doing was visiting the Hummels every few days, bringing them some food and medicines. Beth doesn't forget. Beth has been visiting them every day. But one day she doesn't feel well, and she asks Meg and she asks Joe, would you go instead? And they won't go, so Beth goes again on her own. When Beth goes over that day, she discovers that the family has been ill with scarlet fever. In fact, while she's there, the baby dies in her arms. And the reason she's not feeling well is that she may have it too. So Beth is racked with guilt and grief and sickness, so the doctor sends her home. Now, they have Hannah there to help them, and she's a good nurse for the girls. But, of course, Meg and Joe are afraid. And they're debating, should they tell their mother about this? Their mother has her hands full down there taking care of their father in the soldier's hospital. And actually, right now, Hannah's not too concerned because most of the other girls have already had scarlet fever. So even if they catch it now, they probably won't get too bad a case. Right. But Amy hasn't had it. So Amy is sent off to Aunt March's. But even with all of Hannah's care, Beth continues to get sicker and sicker. And eventually, they decide they do need to let the mother know. But before they can even send the telegram, Laurie arrives to tell them that he has taken the responsibility of sending for her himself. That's right. He, in consultation with his grandfather, decided it was time for Mrs. March to find out. And while Mrs. March is on her way back, the fever breaks and the doctor confirms that Beth is getting better just as Marmy walks through the door. And now Marmy has a secret. Hmm. Mom March has been spending a lot of time with Mr. Brooke. And he's been talking to her. The secret is that Mr. Brooke has fallen in love with Meg. Which makes Joe very angry. But wait, you haven't said, did Mr. and Mrs. March consent to Mr. Brooke marrying their daughter? They decide that they're going to wait and see whether something develops on Meg's side toward Mr. Brooke. And Mr. Brooke has promised them that he will work hard to improve his living and improve his station in life, and he will woo Meg in time. Well, Pat, we mentioned before that Amy went to stay with her Aunt March while Beth was very sick with the scarlet fever. So I want to know how Amy's making out at Aunt March's house. Well, initially, Amy had a rough time of it. Aunt March makes her wash the teacup, play with the dog, and amuse the parrot. It pulls her hair and calls her names. <laughs> In three languages. <laughs> and she has to read to Aunt March until she falls asleep. But Lori had promised to come by and entertain her every day for an hour if she was good and did as she was told. Amy has kept her part of the bargain, and Lori has kept his by taking her out for walks, telling her stories, and amusing her. And Aunt March has gotten to know Amy a little bit. And actually, Amy seems more a child after Aunt March's heart because she hankers after rich things. But Jennifer, even while Lori is being the gentleman with Amy at Aunt March's house, he's being a bit of a prankster at the girls' home. Yes, he's done something that's really quite awful. He's written a letter to Meg pretending that it was from Mr. Brooke, and it's a love letter. My dearest Margaret, I can no longer restrain my passion and must know my fate before I return. And he goes on and asks her not to tell her parents. And what's worse, Meg has answered the letter. Oh, no. Mr. Brooke wrote back and said, I never wrote you a letter. Oh, no. And imagine how Meg must feel at this point. And she thinks that Joe is behind it. Well, she doesn't just think Joe's behind it. She blames Joe for it. And Joe keeps protesting that she's not involved in this at all, and Meg won't hear of it. And then they realize it has to be Lori, and now he's in trouble. <laughs> 
But Jennifer, Meg's embarrassment continues. Not only has Lori been playing a prank on her, she now finds out that her mother and father knew about Mr. Brooke all along. Well, this prank sort of forces Mrs. March's hand, and she has to reveal Mr. Brooke's secret. But Mrs. March does tell Meg, we've told him he needs to give you some time, and you need to come to an understanding of your feelings for him on your own. That's right. Mrs. March, as usual, is a very wise and wonderful mother. But Pat, Meg doesn't have a lot of time to think about it. Who walks in the door but... John Brooke and her father. Finally, they're home. They're home. Well, Pat, Jennifer, with Mr. March home, this should be a very good Christmas for them. But we still have Aunt March to be heard from. Yes, she's on her way over to the house. At the same time, Mr. Brooke and Meg are in the front of the house alone, and he is finally talking to her about his feelings for her. Well, after all, he's talked to everybody else. (laughs) And Meg is telling him she's not sure what she feels about him when Mrs. March walks in and catches them together. And, of course, Meg is blushing, and Aunt March spots it and has to know what is going on here. That's right. That is quite a scene. Yes, it is. Mrs. March walks in and says, bless me, what's all this? And Meg explains, it's father's friend. And Aunt March says, what is father's friend saying to make you look like a peony? There's mischief going on, and I insist upon knowing what it is. (laughs) When Mr. Brooke is out of the room, Aunt March lays down the law. She tells Meg that there is no way that she's going to permit Meg to marry Mr. Brooke. She will cut Meg out of her will. And Meg, to her own surprise, rises to the occasion and begins to defend Mr. Brooke heartily, speaking of his virtues and his patience and his good heart and She would rather starve in a cottage than marry a man that she does not love. That's right. Let's be clear. This defense surprises Meg. And it also surprises Mr. Brooke, who's been listening outside the door at Meg's declaration. That's right. Aunt March slams the door and leaves. Mr. Brooke comes running in, ready with an embrace. And that's when Meg and Mr. Brooke become engaged. That's right. They do get engaged, but they're going to honor the March's wishes, and they're going to wait at least two or three years before they get married. And actually, in our novel, three years pass at this point. Right. And we open again on the wedding. Well, clearly, there's been changes in Meg's life. What have Joe and Amy and Beth been up to in the last three years? Joe has been writing. She's been writing short stories that have actually been placed, and she's been paid for them. And she's published a novel that Got mixed reviews, but at least she got paid for it. Amy's become quite popular in this high society group that Aunt March likes for her to be in. She's even set her up with a painting instructor. She's becoming well-known for her artistic talent. And now she starts dragging Joe along to some of these events. She's making social calls, and Joe, of course, hates this sort of thing, but Amy is insistent that they go. This is what proper young women do. That's right. As they go from house to house, Amy keeps criticizing Joe. You didn't talk enough at this house. You talk too much at the next house. Every time, Joe tries to adjust her behavior, but she ends up overcompensating. And she's in a very strange mood when they end up dropping in on Aunt March, where their Aunt Carol is visiting. And even though the girls don't understand why, Aunt Carol has some very specific, particular questions to ask them. Do you enjoy languages? Do you enjoy receiving favors? And Joe, not knowing that her future sort of hangs in the balance here, is saying things like, oh, no, I hate learning languages. I'm stupid about them. Can't stand French. I don't like it when people do favors for me. And Aunt March and Aunt Carol are exchanging some very knowing looks. What's going on here, Pat? What's going on is that Aunt Carol wants to take one of the girls to Europe with her as her companion. And Joe has always wanted to go to Europe. And she spent so much time looking after Aunt March that anyone would think that Joe would be the one they would choose. But Joe has answered wrong every time. And Amy, of course, has answered in exactly the right way. And in fact, Aunt Carol asks Amy to go with her to Europe. And Joe, of course, is beside herself. She's crushed. That's her dream. 
And what's hard is that she can't resent Amy because Amy really did do all the right things. And Jennifer, things continue to not go well for Joe. Yes, she notices that Beth is down and she's beginning to get uncomfortable about Lori. He's saying things to her and hinting very heavily that he may want to be more than just friends with her. And she doesn't love him that way. So she takes an opportunity to escape home, get away from everything, and take a job in New York. To seek her fortune. That's right. And she tells her mother, in New York, I'll see different faces, I'll hear different voices, it'll give me new experiences, and it'll be valuable for my writing. That's right. But it doesn't quite work out that way. Well, (laughs) how does it work out? She continues to write the kind of sensational stories that were successful for her before. And as she does this, she finds that she has to do research, and then she starts to visit jails and the down-and-out parts of town, and she gets into this sort of grunge thing. That's right. In order to write sensational, lurid stories, she needs to have some sensational, lurid facts. That's right. She also meets some interesting people at the boarding house. One of them is a professor from Germany who is staying there as a sort of tutor to the children in the family. And he's tutoring some other people as well. He takes in students for German language study. And in her letters home, she starts to write about Mr. Baer. Is that what his name is? Friedrich Baer. Before he left Germany, he was a highly respected professor of philosophy, but he can't seem to find much of a job here. But he's cheerful about it, and he's determined to do the best job he can. And so Joe begins to share her stories with him. And as Joe says, he's even more well-read than she is. And I believe he gives her her first copy of Shakespeare's collected plays. Yes. One of the things that she notices about Mr. Bear that she really likes is how much he plays with the children and how much all the children love him and just how much everybody loves him. And she respects him because he's intelligent and he's opening worlds for her intellectually. Well, what does Mr. Bear think of her writing? Mm. Hey, nerds, I'm Sarah, the paper nerd. And if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paperfold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Well, she hasn't quite told him about the sensationalist stories that are being printed in the newspaper until he comes across one of them. And the fact that she didn't want to share those stories with him tells me that she's not very proud of those stories. She's not, but she sees them as a means to make money to help her family, and he sees it differently. Jennifer, what happens when he does find out about these stories? Mr. Bear lets her know that he doesn't approve of the direction her artistic talent has taken. He looks at the newspapers and he says to her... I wish these papers did not come in the house. They're not for children to see, nor young people to read. It is not well, and I have no patience with those who make this harm. And Joe defends it, and she says it doesn't do any harm, and he says there's a demand for whiskey, but I think you and I do not care to sell it. And this criticism shames her, embarrasses her, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And when it's time for her to go home on a break, she leaves with a very uncomfortable feeling between her and Mr. Bear. And it's about the same time that she gets home that Lori graduates from college and comes home as well. And he comes home with the expectation that he's going to propose to Joe. Does he propose to her? He does. Does Joe accept? No. Lori is heartbroken. So he goes to his grandfather. He says, I have to get out of here. And his grandfather arranges for him to take a trip to Europe. And remind me who's in Europe? Amy and Aunt Carol. 
I'm guessing Lori meets up with Amy and Aunt Carol in Europe somewhere. He does. He runs into Amy, and she's not so sure she likes what she sees now. No, Lori's been nursing his broken heart and his anger over Joe's refusal. He's been partying, and he's lazy. He's not at all the person that Amy thought of him. And it's actually when Amy treats him the way Joe would have treated him that Lori's eyes are opened to Amy. Well, Amy's really the perfect companion for someone like Lori. He needs a wife who's going to be socially an asset for him. All right, Pat, how's Joe been faring since she turned Lori down? Joe really hasn't had much time to think about that because when she arrived home, she discovered that Beth's health has been failing and failing rapidly. So she throws herself into making Beth's last days happier. And Beth knows this, doesn't she? Beth knows this, She tells Joe the tide's going out and it won't come back. Yes, and she actually becomes Joe's comforter. And Pat, Beth does die. She does, and she does it bravely. But do Lori and Amy get home in time? No, they both receive letters telling them that Beth has died, and Lori goes to comfort her. And they comfort each other. They comfort each other and decide to marry. And in fact, they marry before they come home. Wow, and how does Joe take that? She's thrilled. At first, she feels a little strange about it, but it only lasts a few seconds. Well, Jennifer, even if Joe is accepting of this marriage between her sister and Lori, it's got to be somewhat bittersweet for her. Yes, she's almost 25, and she's feeling bad. There's a quote here, I'm an old maid, that's what I'm to be, a literary spinster with a pen for a spouse, a family of stories for children, and 20 years hence, a morsel of fame. She's got a hole in her heart. I'd say it's a bear-sized hole. <laughs> so. A Frederick bear-sized hole? Definitely Frederick's bear-sized. And now I want to know, how does she fill that hole? Well, in the midst of family celebration for Amy and Lori's marriage, Joe is acutely aware that she is a little bit left out of the picture and that Beth is missing, too. She takes a little break to regain her composure, and there's a knock at the door. She goes and opens the door, and there is Professor Bear standing there. Finally. She's overjoyed to see him. Yes, she clutches him and says, I pulls him into the house. As if she feared the night would swallow him up before she could get him in. (laughs) That's a great line. And he's immediately made welcome. In fact, Mr. March takes a particular liking to him. It's someone he can discuss philosophy with, maybe a little bit of German. Mm -hmm. He's also made especially welcome by Meg and John Brooks' twins. Oh, yes. I don't know if it's the beard or the crazy hair. Or all the toys and goodies that he has tucked in his pockets because they immediately pilfer his pockets. Chocolate. Chocolate drops, yes. That's right. Always a favorite. We just can't help liking this man. Pat, clearly everyone likes this man. But what about Joe? She likes him, but does she like him? She knows that she's attracted to him. She knows that she respects him. She knows that she admires him. But she can't quite commit to saying that she loves him. And part of it may be that she's afraid that he doesn't love her as much as she hopes he does. And in fact, Jennifer, she embarrasses herself by thinking, oh, he's dressed for courting. Yes, she has that thought. And right after it pops into her head, she's so embarrassed by the thought that she dropped her yarn ball because she'd been sitting there knitting, you know, for something to do. And then she had to go after it, and he went after it too, so they bumped heads. And after that, she was really embarrassed. But everybody else seems to be onto the fact that Professor Bear is in love with Joe, and Joe is in love with him. Well, everyone except Joe at the moment. Well, everyone except Joe. Yes, we even have a passage that over the next few days while he's visiting, 
Nobody wants to remark on the fact that Joe is so happy. Nobody asks why she's singing all the time, but everybody <laughs> notices it. And I guess we should also say that Frederick Bear knows he loves Joe, but he's reluctant to fully show his emotions because he's not quite sure how Joe feels about him yet. Well, actually, on the very first night that he's there, Lori and Amy get up to leave, and he sees them leaving together. And then Lori says to him, this is my wife. That's when I think he feels the road is clear and he is going to come courting now because he's been afraid all this time that Joe and Lori still had something going. Well, Pat, with the coast clear, how does Frederick Bear go about showing Joe she's in love with him? Well, he comes to visit every day. And even though he doesn't specifically come to call on her, he comes to visit the two little ones. He comes to visit her father. He comes. He makes a lot of visits time. to the father. Yeah, he's circling, but he hasn't landed yet. <laughs> Pat, that's a good way to put it. Joe's doing a little circling of her own. She yes. decides not to cancel her evening walk just because she happens to run into the professor all the time. Well, Pat, let me ask you, do these circles ever intersect? They do. Finally. Professor Bear hasn't been around for a few days, and Joe is becoming very agitated that he has gone away without saying goodbye. So she sends herself on an errand to the part of town where she thinks he might be, but tells herself it's not really why she's going there. On her way to cross the street, she almost gets annihilated by a passing truck, and the gentleman who sort of rescues her is Professor Bear. How convenient. And it's raining, and he has an umbrella, and she doesn't. Almost as if she purposely forgot to take the umbrella that her mother told her to take. Gee. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes for very convenient walking and talking. Well, talking's good. But they're talking about him leaving. He has accepted a position at a college in the West and will be gone for at least a year. This upsets Joe very much. She cries out, oh no, so far. And actually, the fact that she's sad about it makes him happy. Oh yes, then they have a good time shopping. And then while they're waiting for the bus, she's actually crying. Well, I'm sure he doesn't let her cry without saying something. He says, heart's dearest, why do you cry? And she tells him, Because you are going away. And he says, oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, he says, oh, that is so good. so good. And he continues, Joe, I have nothing but much love to give you. I came to see if you could care for it. And I waited to be sure I was something more than a friend. Am I? Can you make a little place in your heart for old Fritz? Oh, yes, said Joe. And then that's their proposal. Now you know that they're going to get married. Well, Pat, when's the wedding? Well, it can't be for a while because he still has to teach and also because he wants to be able to provide for her, even though Joe convinces him that she would rather be happy than rich. But he has pride and he doesn't want to take a wife until he can support her. That's right. Although she says, I'm glad you're poor. I couldn't bear a rich husband. (laughs) But thank God she's got a rich aunt. Yes, she does. Because about a year later, Aunt March dies. And surprise, she leaves her estate to Joe. Plumfield. Plumfield. Plumfield, that's a pretty large estate. They should be able to sell that and live on that money for the rest of their lives. Ah, but they have better plans for it. Better plans than selling it for a bundle of money? Yes. In fact, Joe says the crop we're going to raise is a profitable one. They're going to open a school for children who don't really fit in elsewhere. Poor children, children with problems, children who have needs beyond what regular education can fulfill. Also some rich boys with parents who want their children to get an alternative education. And Pat, Jennifer, essentially that's how our novel ends. Our little women are grown up and now are taking care of little men. And big ones, too. Well, yes, you're right. Now, of course, Pat, Jennifer, we didn't get a chance to meet every character in our novel. We didn't get a chance to cover every moment. So if there's a moment you want to tell us about or a character you want to introduce us to, now's your opportunity. Pat? 
Alcott is an astute observer of human nature. She's very witty in her own way. For example, when Amy has just told Lawrence that he's to go away, he's not the man that she thought he was, that she's not happy with the way he's turned out, and he's lazy. Alcott writes, Amy's lecture did Laurie good, though, of course, he did not own it at all till long afterward. Men seldom do. For when women are the advisors, the lords of creation don't take the advice till they've persuaded themselves just what they intended to do. Then they act upon it. And if it succeeds, they give the weaker vessel half the credit of it. If it fails, they generally give her the whole. (laughs) Gee, that was one of my favorite lines. Jennifer, do you have something? Well, I love the scene where Aunt March catches Meg and John Brooke talking, and she doesn't know that Meg is just discouraging him. And she starts lecturing Meg on how she's not going to have her throw herself away on a poor man. Hush, he'll hear because he's just outside the door. And in the middle of this, Aunt March makes Meg so angry that she says, I shall marry whom I please, Aunt March, and you can leave your money to anyone you like. And Aunt March says, Heidi tidy, is that the way you take my advice, miss? You'll be sorry for it by and by when you've tried love in a cottage and found it a failure. And Meg is so polite all the time. You can't believe she says this. She says it can't be a worse one than some people find in big houses. And, of course, John Brooke overhears this, and he comes in the door after Aunt March leaves and says, I knew it. I knew you loved me. That's one of my favorite scenes. (laughs) That is a very good scene. It really does show that Meg recognizes that she has not quite been straight with John. Oh, she's terrible with him. She was just really (laughs) awful with him right before Aunt March came in. Jennifer, I'm glad you brought up that story about how mean Meg was to John. Throughout our conversation, we focused on how good these girls were. They had a great relationship with their mother, with their father. They even had a very good relationship with each other. But these were not perfect girls. They certainly had their moments. I'm particularly reminded of a fight between Joe and Amy. Well, that was terrible. Amy was upset with Joe, and she took all of Joe's manuscripts that she'd been writing her whole life and burned them in the fire. So all Joe's writings were gone, and she was furious. Wouldn't speak with her, wouldn't allow Amy to apologize to her. But then Amy was trying to get back in Joe's good graces and follow Joe and Lori to the river where they were going to go ice skating. Lori called back to Joe that the ice was thin while Amy was still putting her skates on. And Joe deliberately did not tell Amy this. So, of course, Amy goes out on the ice. There's a big crash. Joe is paralyzed with fear and guilt. Fortunately, Lori is there, and he immediately acts to save Amy. And that's a pretty bad thing to (laughs) almost let your sister drown because you're mad at her. Well, and that's why I wanted to bring up that one example of the March girls not always being perfect little women. Even though they weren't perfect, though, they had such good parents who gave them good advice and helped them overcome all the struggles that all kids have growing up. The girls all become women of character, and they all have happy marriages, like their parents, even Joe, who was not sure how she felt about marriage in the first place. You know, Pat, I'm glad you brought up that point about Joe sometimes not even understanding her own emotions, because that really leads to my favorite line of the whole novel. And it's Louisa May Alcott talking about Mr. Bear, or perhaps all men in general. Mr. Bear could read several languages, but he had not learned to read women yet. And sometimes I feel like I still haven't learned how. And with me still not understanding women, we'll end today's conversation about the novel Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. 
Jennifer, Pat, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're welcome, You're Frank. welcome, Frank. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, what I want to know from you today is about Louisa May Alcott. I have a feeling that many readers, myself included, tend to think that Josephine March, Joe in our novel, and Louisa May Alcott are one and the same, indistinguishable. How close to the truth is that? About as far as you can get. I had a feeling. Not that Louisa May Alcott was bad, but she was in constant conflict with her father, who believed that he was angelic, and because she didn't match his interests and activities, she was the opposite. In fact, Ted, I know you have a story about how early this hostility developed between Louisa May Alcott and her father. Yes, I think of Adolescent Rebellion. Instead, her father wanted to have a moral experiment and moral lesson with his daughter. So when Louisa May was four, four, four years old, he placed an apple in front of her, said, don't touch it, it's mine. He left the room, came back, she had eaten it. Because I wanted to. And her father knew from that that she could never meet his standards of angelic pureness. But Ted, thank God she didn't. If she had, we may never have had the Louisa May Alcott that we know today. Or the many Louisa May Alcotts under whatever name. Louisa May Alcott was taught, among other things, that writing was not nice. Her father was a philosopher, he was a transcendentalist, and his daughter could never match up to him. And she went on this schizophrenic life, half good, something like you might see with Joe, and half bad when she wrote other work under pen names. Well, tell me a little bit about those other works that she wrote when she was the bad Louisa. Well, they varied. Some of the pen names were delightful, but the one that really matters is A.M. Barnard. This was where she wrote pot boilers and romances and mysteries. Now, wait a minute. A.M. Barnard was a masculine pseudonym. Yes. This was because at the time, women weren't supposed to write pot boilers. There were certain types of books that were taboo. So they would take a masculine name, which always meant two initials and a last name, which somehow hid their identity in the publisher's mind. Well, how did the works that she wrote under some of these various pseudonyms succeed? They were doing very well, and she was on the road to her goal of financial independence with all family debts paid off. Well, then I guess that begs the question, why does a successful writer who's having her works published and making money for them suddenly start writing the kind of novels only women should be writing. She didn't. Her publisher waved a check and said, write a girl's book now. Ah. She said, thank you, and did it. Wrote more than one. (laughs) Yes, but that first one, Little Women, sold 2,000 copies instantly and has never been out of print the rest of her life and our lives. I guess that would get me to use my real name, too. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Ted, thanks for your endnotes today. You're welcome, Frank. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.